you to everybody for being here. Um, I, I'm just so appreciative of all of you showing up, of Benel for giving me this opportunity, which you know is is such a privilege to be able to do this. And also, just the city of Homer, because you are such an art-friendly city. So um, it's it's nice to be here. It's nice to visit you. <clears throat> and I'm going to lose my voice here, so I'm going to get some water. Um, Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit about myself, um, and then I want to spend more time uh, telling you a little bit about the technique of etching, which you're looking at here. For most part, there's one drawing in the show. And, um, and then questions, if anybody has questions. So the first thing most people want to know is, where are you from? And the fact is, I'm not from anywhere, because um, my family were kind of nomads. So I don't have a hometown, and it probably says up there I was born in Tampa, but I left at 18 months, and I've never really lived there since then. So, um, so we moved, until I was eight, we moved about once a year, once every two years, once every three years. Um, and being a kind of shy kid, you know, I would make a lot of friends, and then you have to say goodbye anyway. So that, that was the early childhood thing. Um, and um, small family, so I, I really didn't have a lot of connections with people. That was sort of one of my one of the features of my life early on. Um, but I, I want to mention my grandparents because they have a lot to do with what you're seeing here. Um, uh, I had three grandparents at the time. I, I, I won't tell you about my uh, mother's mother because she wasn't an art person, so she doesn't kind of come into this except that she. She was an absolutely um, fearless person who traveled a lot, so I, I get some strength from her. Um, but the thing I got from my other grandparents, my grandfather was a professional cartoonist, and he was also a portrait artist, and he was a sculptor. And when I was about five, I wandered into a studio for the first time in my life that I can remember, and it was just like, oh, look at all this, you know? Stuff happens here that doesn't happen anywhere else. And look, uh, things come to life here that, you know, I, I, I don't even know what they are. And I said, well, this is what I want. You know, at five, I knew that. And a few years later, uh, it came to light that my grandmother also was a highly trained artist. And I bugged her and bugged her until she showed me her work. And then I understood kind of why she didn't want to show me, because maybe it wasn't um, really appropriate for a child. But she was a medical illustrator. So she had all these very, very detailed, through a microscope, pictures of uh, cells and tumors and um, parts of cadavers and so forth, which were really kind of cool, actually. And, and her trained attention to detail comes into some of my work, particularly that drawing back there. I'm, I'm channeling grandma um, because her training drawings that were also in her portfolio were things like um, uh, a strawberry with every seed, you know, and every seed's highlight and um, little, little tiny animal skulls and that kind of thing. So they kind of gave me the idea, you can do this, okay? Um, the next thing that happened that was really important in terms of me thinking about being an artist was we got sent to Finland. And this was Helsinki in the 50s which was um, the beginning of an explosion of design and creativity um, all over Scandinavia. So that's where all your Scandinavian modern comes from. But, you know, I arrived there and I looked 
around, and everywhere you looked, there was something fabulously beautiful. It was textiles, and it was um, glass blowing, it was public sculpture, it was music, it was uh, uh, ceramics, uh, it was everything that you could possibly have as an ordinary person in your life was being made by people who were well-known and well-recognized by everybody in the community. Kind of like homework, you know? <laughs> and they were the rock stars. And, and I, I, I took that in and I, I thought, wow, this is starting to feel like home. Not ever having had a real home. But uh, unfortunately, of course, three years later, it was somewhere else. But I, I kept that with me. That was something that I always wanted to get back to. Um, around 1970, when I was 20, 21, 22, um, I was helping my then husband get through Claremont Colleges for an MFA, and there was a woman there who was also a, a student who was just finishing up her program, and her name was Mary Hendrickson. Some of you may know her and heard about her. She is. She's really a pillar of the artistic community in Ketchikan, and also in Alaska in a lot of ways. Anyway, Mary was this dynamic kind of Valkyrie woman who was brought up in Ketchikan, and she never shut up about Alaska and how much she wanted to get back. And she did come back, but you know, when I was listening to her talk, I thought, oh, you know, I, I, I'm not a Finn. I can't get back to Finn, really. But Alaska, maybe, maybe that's a possibility. North, you know, same kind of birch trees and all that stuff. So um, that started with the idea in my head. And by the time I was 29, I got here. I arrived um, with an 18-month-old. And I had a job eventually in Kodiak. And I stayed in Kodiak for four years. Um, one of the things that my grandfather told me, and he, he, he didn't really encourage me, he knew how hard it can be to be a working artist. So he thought, all my family thought, it would be better for me if I got a nice education, married a nice man, had a bunch of little nice children, and uh, lived in comfort for the rest of my life. I did try. <laughs> <laughs> I had a kid, you know, I had a couple husbands. Um, somehow, I still wanted to be an artist. So anyway, um, where was I? Oh, got to come back. But I, I skipped a spot. I'll skip telling you about something. Well, just about the time that Mary Henderson left Claremont, I got very sick. And um, so I'm, what did I say? 21 years old? I can't remember, 22? 1970. And I was told that I probably wouldn't live beyond 35. Um, and I thought, well, that kind of changes everything. I was about to try to get into graduate school at that point. Um, but I had to take a lot of time off just to deal with that. And of course, I didn't die at 35. The person who told me that wasn't quite current on his reading. Um, and as it happened, the cure for my illness, which was Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, had just been developed at Stanford at that time. So by the skin of my teeth, I figured in. Mm -hmm. I found, with the help of my family, a, a physician who was already using that protocol, even though it hadn't been published yet. And I went through the treatment, and I came out okay, except what anybody will tell you who is um, treated for cancer young is that it's never really over. 
there's there's a woman named Suleika Joan who's um, uh, um, there's a recent film about her and her husband who I know his name but I can't remember. John Batiste. John Batiste, yeah. It's it's just been released, and she goes into this, you know, uh, in a way that's very educational for people. But, you know, she and I are, are are among many many hundreds of thousands of people who know this. You know, it never quite entirely leaves you alone. So anyhow, I got to uh, Kodiak, um, and then eventually I found my way to Anchorage in 1983. And the thing that I meant to tell you about my grandfather was, I said, well, grandfather, what do I have to do to be an artist? And he said, well, you know, if you really want to be an artist, learn to draw. Three words, that's all he ever told me. So all this time, I've been drawing, I've been drawing, and I drew in Kodiak when my kid was asleep, I drew my kid. When I came to Anchorage, I did little sketches, and I was, you know, working. I was actually working in mental health, um, but there was always some kind of little drawing or watercolor going on. So, you know, I never kind of gave up on it entirely, but I had my hands full with other stuff. Um, by 1999, I ended up getting my PhD in psychology. So, I took a big sigh of relief, and I said. Nobody can ever ask me to go to more school for, for mental health, okay? And um, by that time, my second husband had passed away. My son had left uh, uh, to be an adult on his own. And um, I thought, wow, you know, I've got time. <laughs> so, you know, even though I came to Anchorage and I opened a practice, I started going outside for, um, you know, workshops and painting workshops and uh, drawing workshops and sometimes to Seattle and sometimes to uh, Arizona and eventually to New York and and uh, finally in 2016 I started to go to San Francisco to um, a place called Crown Point Press. It's a professional press, uh, art press, and they put on a workshop once a year for people who want to come and see what they're doing. And what they're doing is what you see here. It's intaglio printmaking in full, you know, spectrum of colors. So I learned how to do that from them. I went down there three times. I, I think I started in 2016. So, so by then, even though I I had already done some years of uh, oil painting, and some some people here may have seen my oil paintings, um, I kind of moved on because this started to feel like my voice, and and. And it was, it was grandpa, you know, with his cartoony, and with a little bit of a sense of humor. And, um, uh, and then it was also all the drawing, and, and then, of course, all the color. Uh, one of the things that I was able to do when I was a kid, with us traveling around and we went to various countries, I became a museum girl. And I spent a lot of time just looking at art, looking at paintings, you know, and looking at drawings. And, and so I, I kind of had, uh, a file folder in my head of all kinds of stuff that was just ready to come out in some form. So, so that's all here too. So, um, but in the meantime, about once every ten years, I uh, I had a, a health crisis. So it happened in Kodiak. It happened uh, a couple of times in Anchorage. It happened this last summer. I was out of commission for eight weeks this summer when I was trying to get this show put together. Um, but, um, you know, I kind of got back on my feet just in time. Uh, so, 
I guess what I'm trying to get across here is the idea of survival has been with me for a long, long time. Uh, when you get told you're going to die at 35 and you're only 22 years old, you kind of go, well, these are things you can't really count on in life, <laughs> you know. And, and then, of course, that didn't happen, but I'm still left with the awareness that um, you never know. You have to use your time the best you can. Um, so so if, as you look around here, you might catch on to that theme a little bit. Um, and perseverance, because for anybody, no matter what your circumstances are, if there's something you want to do, you have to kind of keep going. <laughs> um, and there's always going to be obstacles, and there's always going to be failures. And of course, as a society, we're very much um, faced with that now. We have lots and lots of problems to solve, but we have to persevere. So uh, that also, I try to convey my a little bit of anxiety, but uh, some of my hopefulness in, in this work also. So those are my themes. Um, uh, let me tell you a little bit about um, what intaglio printmaking is. Um, and you may have noticed over there, there's these two plates. In fact, I think, if you don't mind, I'm going to move over here. We'll talk about these two plates. And they are the plates that, that I used to create this print. Um, actually, there were three plates, because um, when you do a multiple plate print, the first plate that goes through is a blank. And that's so that you can stretch your wet paper. And if you don't stretch your wet, pep, wet paper, it won't register properly. You know, the first one will stretch it, and then the registration won't work. So things will, things will be off a little bit. So the first piece of paper goes through is a blank. Then your lightest color goes through. And in that case, it was this. Because here we have a black plate. See all the black there. And then we have a red plate. So this was the second plate to go through. And I inked it. And as you look at this, you'll realize that when you ink it, there's no ink on this shiny surface. There's only ink where there's little, um, and I, I left it over there, but <laughs> I, I use a little stylus, and I, I, I cover this thing with a hard wax, and then I take my little stylus and I draw through the hard wax to expose the copper. And then it can go in the acid, and we say bite, the acid bites the copper, and it makes um, little ditches everywhere where I expose the copper. Okay. This here is different, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm talking about the lines right now. So when you ink it, all you want to do with ink is to get it into little lines. So you put the ink all over the plate, you kind of squish it around so it gets into little lines, and then you wipe all the ink <coughs> off the surface. And that takes a while. I use my hand, that's a kind of traditional way to do it, and you wipe, 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 with just that part of your hand, that little, that little cushion there. You wipe, 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 and then you wipe your hand on a rag. And you wipe, wipe, wipe some more, and you wipe your hand on a rag. And so you've got shiny copper showing everywhere where you want it, but you left the, the ink in the lines, okay? Um, so, that would go through first. And then I would put this line plate through, and this is my key plate. This is what kind of makes the whole thing make sense. You know, this is the actual design here. And the same thing. I would squish the black ink all through there, and then I would wipe, wipe, wipe with my hand until only the ink in the 
in the bitten places is left. And that's why you use wet paper going through the press. The press has about 5,000 pounds of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And it presses the wet, um, sort of malleable paper down into those lines, okay? And the paper picks up the ink. So that's how you get the ink to stay on the paper. But let me talk about these non-line areas a little bit. Um, this here, that isn't made with a line. That's made with a different kind of resist on the, uh, on the plate. <laughs> it's, it's a little crazy to talk about this um, because, well, there's a lot of ways to make prints, but, but etching is the only method I know of that uses this particular way to get a shape into your picture. You take your plate, and by means that are too complicated to <laughs> explain here, you cover your plate with a very even coating of particles of rosin, okay? Rosin, if you melt the particles, will resist the acid. So, um, you create a little cloud of rosin and you put your plate under it and it all drops down and then you have about 50% coverage of rosin on your plate and it's all loose and if you, if you jostle it, <laughs> it'll move around. So you have to very carefully take it over to a heat source, melt your rosin, and then you have something that's like the opposite of pixels. The rosin won't allow a bite the color's going to be around all the dots, okay? And that's how we make this part. That was all done with the Aquatint. And if you look closely at any of these that have uh, an area of color shape, you'll see that it's, it's got a texture, it's got a little dotted texture. And that's because the rosin resisted the acid, okay? Yeah, so I probably lost you there. <laughs> it's the most... Um, it's the place where the mistakes are most likely to happen, so um, I won't dwell on it. <laughs> but anyway, if you want to come over here and like run your finger over that area, you can feel the little dots. And, and if you want to run your finger over the, um, the line places, you really won't feel the lines very much unless you run your fingernail past them. You know, then you might feel them a little bit because they're all under the surface. So. Um, that's the essence of intaglio printmaking. Um, you need pressure, you need ink in the little lines, you need something to resist the acid, you need the acid, and then you need all of that to come together um, as you put your, your plates on the press and run them through. And when you're all done with that and you pull up your paper, voila, you know, <laughs> there is either a successful print or a failure, <laughs> in which case you set it aside and you analyze what went wrong and then you start over. So um, everything here is intaglio printmaking except for this piece here, which is um, the drawing um, in honor of Lenny. Um, any, any questions? Yeah. Carol, where did this process of Oh, Rembrandt. Rembrandt. Uh, you know, before uh, Rembrandt, um, there were some people who, who were, well, there were a lot of people who were using acid 
to bite into um, metal and also doing engraving on metal. And they were armorers. Okay? And if you look at, in a museum at the old armor, you'll see that there's beautiful filigree and, and designs on the armor, particularly if it was the, the good set of armor that you weren't actually going to go into battle with. Um, <clears throat> so the technology was there. Um, I don't know how many people were involved in it for making images before Rembrandt, but he actually made it an art form. And if you ever have a chance to look at a, a Rembrandt etching in the museum, or if you go to the Museum of Modern Art in, I'm sorry, if, uh, the Met Museum in um, New York, you can actually make an appointment to go to their drawings and print section, and they will bring out original, not in a frame, Rembrandt etchings for you to look at. Most of them are about yay big. They're all fabulous. You'd think that, uh, well, he didn't have Aquatint yet. That wasn't invented until the 1700s sometime. Um, uh, so everything he did, he did with a stylus. But of course, what he's known for is the depth of his and, and range of his blacks and, and the expressiveness of all that. And also, he had a way of making extremely fine lines, like up in the clouds, you know, the cloudy lines. Um, and I think the way he did that was not with acid. I think he actually engraved those lines in, or, or perhaps did what we call dry point, where you just take your needle and you go right onto the plate and you, <clears throat> you scrape a line into the plate. And then you take a little knife that's specifically made for the purpose and you um, slice off any burr of copper that was left when you, when you displace the copper to make that ditch. You just slice that off. And then you can get an extremely fine line. So, so he, he invented all of these ways to do it. And every intaglio printmaker everywhere <coughs> owes a huge debt of gratitude to him, um, no matter how much you rely on um, Aquatech and other, other sources like that. I answered your question. Okay, anybody else? Any other question? Any question about the, the subject matter? Okay, go ahead. Um, so you talked about, uh, if the print doesn't come out, well, you discard it. But when you have an addition of 10, does it, do they have to be sequential? Or if one doesn't come out, that just is not part of the addition? You know, traditionally, uh, Let me say two things here. I don't follow the tradition whether it, it comes off first, because I lose track, okay? I have no things to deal with. <laughs> um, uh, and it may be that they actually went one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. What I would say is if I have ten that work out to my standard, those are my ten, okay? But it used to be more important which one came to the press first, because the copper, um, it was, um, I don't know, I think in Rembrandt's time the copper was hammered, it was actually pounded flat, and these days it's rolled flat. And somehow or other the pounded flat will wear out a little bit faster. So, so um, it wasn't unusual after Rembrandt died or when the printmakers died that people would get hold of their plates and just run them through and run them through and run them through until they were practically gone, okay? So the more you print a plate, the less quality of line you're gonna have. So um, among 10 plates, doesn't make much difference. You know, you're not gonna use any quality of line. 
So I just I just keep track. I'm going to have ten if I want to do an addition of ten. That's them. No more of them. Unless actually you can use those plates again, but you have to change up the color scheme or you have to change up something. You have to do it on a different kind of paper. Um, and which happened over here with the, the two little pregnant girls. Um, that's the same set of plates. And they're just done with different colors. And, and over here we have um, these two plates that are um, ones with color and ones without. That's two separate editions. And sometimes I do that. I did that with these over here on this wall too. Because the feel of the, the image is different with um, color or without color. And sometimes um, it doesn't make a lot of difference. So I, I wouldn't consider doing that. But with these two in particular, um, some people like the one without color, some people like the one with color. I sold some of both. Um, and I think the, the two over here with the, the puppets, um, uh, I think it, it actually has a lot of different meaning without the, the color. Yeah. It's like there's a grown-up version and a kid version. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Because with, a, with one without color, that, um, that Grim Reaper down there is much more prominent, much more part of the story. So, yeah. And people have asked me about those and some other things that I've done. Is this part of a children's book illustration? <laughs> Which is a fair question because I, I try to put a fair amount of playfulness in, in, in these works um, and sort of the spark the imagination of the viewer. And, and, and my, my answer that I, I would like to give to people is, yeah, there's a children's story here. You're welcome to write it. Or if you want to hear the story, show it to a kid, you know? Ask the kid what the story is, they'll tell you. Okay. There, there are many different stories that can go with um, I'll say something, let's see, there's one piece here that, um, the, the one in blue over there, that uh, profile, that is not done the way I described to you. That one is, is done with spit bite. Actually, there is a line plate with that, and that, that was done with regular etching. But all those little squiggles on there. Um, I had my rosin cloud and I melted it on a plate and then instead of immersing the plate in the acid, I took a, a brush and dipped it in acid and I drew all those squigglies. And what you get then is a soft edge. You know, here you have a hard edge. But, but if, you're, if you're melting it, it kind of spreads out through the little dots a little bit. And, um, and so you, you, you get that kind of spontaneous shape kind of thing in there. And, and that's what I wanted. I wanted like little brain worms. <laughs> um, and, and it's actually pretty, pretty labor intensive because the acid like kind of gives out its power after 10 minutes. So if you want it darker, you have to, you have to rinse it, dry it, and go in for another 10 minutes, and rinse it, dry it, and go in for another 10 minutes. So it took me all day to do that thing. Um, but it came out exactly the way I wanted, so I was happy with it. Um, there's, there's probably um, there's probably a story that goes with each one of these, and if you're interested in you know my my point of view on it, just ask. 
Hmm? The observer. Oh, the observer. But she she is actually me. In fact, she's based on a self-portrait that I drew uh, back in the 80s. I don't look like that anymore. Um, uh, but um, I did that right after I went to Hawaii, and somebody took me on that road that goes over the top of the Big Island where you, you see all the kind of dead volcanoes, but there's like lumps all over the place. And, and I just start, started to picture what would this place have looked like when these things were all active. Um, so I tried to picture that, and also this was just before Kalawea really went, and it really exploded in 2018, was it, I think? Um, and so I was there, but it was, it was not very active. But I, I could see that, you know, all around me was, was gravel, it was basically lava, but there were trees growing out of it. So, so that really impressed me that um, the relationship between volcanoes and, and vegetation and how they, they like the lava and they will come up even after everything's been turned into kind of a, a hellscape, you know. So, so I, I, I wanted her there just taking note of everything. And of course, observing is something that's really important to me. Um, I had to do it in psychology. Um, I had to do it in a certain way, uh, you know, and I had to, to uh, document in certain ways, and that's one kind of observing, but just being out of the world observing. And, and then valuing that, like walking along and seeing a really interesting shaped um, leaf on the ground, you know. That's a source of joy. So um, I want to I want to promote that. I want to promote observing. Anything else? Any other questions? Observations? I probably used up my half hour, haven't I? <laughs> okay. Well, you're welcome to come and speak to Carol. Yeah, yeah. I'll just yeah. I'll just be moving around, and if there's if there's any particular piece that you're concerned about or interested in or curious about, just just grab me. I'll be happy to talk to you. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Carol. Thank you. Thank you.